You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. be cool. I was just thinking as Luke was praying, I mean, I was praying alongside with you, but I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I just sat down and sort of playing here the piano? I don't know how to play, but wouldn't it be cool? Would y'all think that was cool if I just like, anyway, I think that kind of stuff sometimes I'm like, you know, just get up there and I just start rolling into my sermon intro with some background music that I'm playing. Anyways, um, if you're a guest, I apologize. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and on behalf of the, the pastors and the members, so glad to have you with us today. We are not live streaming this service anymore, so we can do anything we want. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we don't have to worry about those people out there. That's exactly right. That's right. So, um, hey, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 4 as we continue in our series that we've entitled The New Normal. And here's the idea behind this series. People are beginning to ask the question of, hey, what's the new normal going to look like post-pandemic? And what we think is a better question is, what does God want to be the new normal for his people? Because there were some things about the old normal that weren't all that great. Um, there were some things that we really believe God wants to do in us and through us. We believe he wants us to come out of the pandemic better then we went into it. And so um, we're just trying to discover together what is that new normal. And if you have a Bible today, as we continue the series, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4. And uh, I do want to say this. I don't think I said it earlier. If you are a guest today and you want more information about us as a church or you want me to personally connect with you or one of our pastors, there's a connect card in that back seat that's in front of you. Grab that at any time during the service. Fill out the information about yourself and leave it in the seat. And that'll just be a way of us knowing how we can love you and serve you to the best of our ability. So Matthew 4, verse 18 through verse 22, I'm reading from the NIV translation. And as always, the notes for the message are on the YouVersion Bible app, if that interests you. Matthew 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two others, or two two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I do thank you so much for those who are here. Um, I know that nobody got ready and showed up um, to a, a service like this um, just to hear some words and sing some songs, but um, we just know that we need something beyond ourselves. Um, we have been so reminded in the last year that we are not in control. Um, just a reminder, God, that, that life it is so fragile. That the things that we often build our lives on, they don't satisfy us. They don't fulfill us. Jesus, you have come to give us life and give it to us abundantly. And we know that is found in, in, in trusting and obeying your words. And so I do pray that we would, Father, hear your words today and not just hear them, but that they would take deep root into our hearts and transform us from the inside out as we begin to put what we learn today into practice. And it's in Christ's name that I do pray and ask these things. Amen. 
Well, there are a lot of athletes who have chosen to play through the pain. Um, Men and women who, despite being hurt, despite having every excuse to quit and give up, have risen to the occasion and have done great things. And there are two athletes that immediately come to my mind. The first one being, of course, Michael Jordan. Um, Anybody remember this game? It's called the flu game, but if you've watched the Last Dance documentary, you know Jordan didn't have the flu. He had eaten eaten some bad pizza the night before the game and had food poisoning. He was up all night puking. He was dehydrated. As you can see here, he was miserable. He was sick. He was nauseous. He felt terrible. But he shows up to game five, Chicago Bulls versus the Utah Jazz. And he not only goes on to score 38 points, which wins the game for the Bulls, but actually leads them to winning the entire series and therefore Jordan's fifth championship. So it was a heroic performance. But next slide... What we have to remember is that Jordan was not in isolation. Obviously, this was before COVID, right? Um, and so he had a team around him. This is Scottie Pippen literally helping carry him off of the court during a timeout. And Jordan would go on to tell you um, that it was because of this team, because of their encouragement, because of their support, because they were also there with him, they were able to win the game. And he was able to do what he did. Another example that comes to my mind of an athlete that pushed the pain is this one right here. Anybody remember this moment from the 1996 Olympics? Anybody else besides me? So, yes, Kerry Strug had to hit the perfect landing in order for the USA team to win the Olympics, but she falls on her first attempt, jacks up, like tears up her, her ankle. Here she is getting carried off by her trainer. She then goes over to the sidelines. You can watch it all on YouTube. She's crying. She's in agonizing pain. The commentators are like, there's no way she can go on. And yet, next slide, we see like she rises to the occasion, right? In the middle of the pain and the drama, she goes back out, sticks her landing on like one, like, you know, bummed leg, and she wins gold for the USA team. But again, what we have to remember, next slide, is like Michael Jordan, Carrie Strug was not in isolation. She had trainers who were able to take care of her. She had a team that was rubbing her back and like, you can do it, Carrie. Like they were encouraging her. She had a coach that literally, right, not just physically, but emotionally was able to help carry her when she needed them the most. The reason I give you these examples is because according to Jesus, whether you are an athlete or not, he says that in this world, you will have many troubles. We all will have times of sickness and pain and and suffering And if we are going to persevere, if we're going to learn how to play through the pain, the Bible is clear, we need a team around us. We need to be deeply connected to people who can help us stay the course, especially whenever we feel like throwing in the towel or giving up. There's a book I'm reading right now called Tempered Resilience by Todd Bolzinger. He says it like this. In one study after another of those who have resilience, grit, perseverance, or tenacity, It cannot be overstated how strongly the connection is between resilience and relationships. Now, I know intellectually we all get this. But over the last hundred years, community has been in decline in the United States of America, long before a global pandemic. And I think, though there are many reasons for why this is, here are just a few that I want to bring to your attention that I think is working against us. And one of the reasons we've seen a decline in community is because we've seen an increase in mobility. By and large, Americans are traveling, switching jobs, and changing addresses more than ever. Uh, Zach Eswine, who's a pastor we like a lot from St. Louis, says this, wherever we are, it's like we're itching to leave. 
We have somewhere we're supposed to be, but we are, but where we are is not that place. And so as a result, we are moving more than ever. No, moving is not sinful in and of itself. The problem is the more you move, the less likely it is for you to develop deep roots that is necessary to form healthy relationships. Another reason we've seen a decline in community over the last hundred years is because of modern conveniences. Um, in the early 1900s, all the way up to the 1950s, for example, if you wanted to get cool in the evening, you would have to go outside your home. You'd have to get under a shade tree or sit on your front porch and let the breeze hit you. And while you're out there, chances are you'd probably see your neighbors doing the same thing. But then this bad boy was invented. Anybody remember this? Right? The air conditioner. Uh, back when I guess it was the little window unit. And as you can see, this lady's pumped, right? Because now she no longer has to go outside with her neighbors to get cooled off. She can do it in her own home, right? Uh, here is a, another example of something that, invented, that was invented that created the decline of community. The garage, what is it about the garage that creates a decline in community? Well, now, think about this. You can leave work, go home, and without ever getting out of your car, shut the garage door, and then go inside. So you can live in a neighborhood for years and never even have to wave at your neighbors. Like, they don't even know you're home, right? So this is aided in decline of community. Um, how about this? Anybody remember whenever this came out? Anybody know what this is? What is this? It's an answer machine. Now, if you're under uh, 30 years of age, uh, you might find this hard to believe, <clears throat> but there was a time period where if you wanted to know who was calling you, you know what you had to do? You had to pick the phone up, and you had to talk to whoever it was that called you, whether you wanted to or not. But then this came out right before the days of caller ID, and what would happen if somebody called you, and you're like, man, I don't know who it is, you would let the answer machine get it. And then if you wanted to talk to the person, you'd be like, oh, oh, sorry, I was outside. I heard the phone ring, so I just now got in, right? But if it was somebody you didn't like or didn't necessarily want to talk to, you just let the answer machine get it, and then you'd probably never call them back, right? So that's the answer machine. Um, we have also another modern convenience that I think led to the decline of community is the increase of entertainment. Um, whenever I was growing up, there was not a flat screen in every room in the house. You didn't have a device. The only uh, gaming system you had was an Atari, and Pong just didn't entertain you for long, right? Um, so, you know, whenever I was growing up, we had one TV in our living room, and it was like a 12-inch screen in one of those big, massive wooden boxes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so literally, it weighed like 1,900 pounds. So I remember like my dad, if we're going to rearrange the room, it was a big deal because like my dad has to like call the deacons of the church to come just like move the TV for us from one side of the you know, living room to another. It took like seven dudes to, to pick it up. Right? And so, like, if we wanted to be entertained, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to go in the living room, maybe watch TV, but if mom's already in there, well, I'm not going to watch, like, Days of Our Lives, right? And so, what do we do? You know, you go outside, and guess who you play with when you're outside? People, like your neighbors. Like, you go ride your bikes with them, or play football with them, climb trees with them, but again, the increase of entertainment has really begun to kind of cancel it out to where now, right, like, most kids are doing this right here, right? They're looking at a screen almost all the time. Um, and this leads to, I would say, one more um, uh, invention that's kind of led to the decline of community, and that is the rise of social media. Now, I'm not going to beat up on social media. Um, in fact, I just posted my first Instagram post for the first time in two years just this last week because we had snow flurries. I'm like, that's a good reason to break my social media silence. Snow flurries in Paragold, Arkansas. Um, so I'm not going to beat up on social media, but here's the thing. <clears throat> what social media tells us is that we can be happy with 1,000 one-inch deep relationships. 
Social media tries to convince you that you can be happy with surface-level relationships where everybody knows you, but nobody really knows you. And therefore, as a result, we we begin to replace community with connectivity. Now add on top of that the fact that, yes, we're in the middle of a global pandemic where we are covering up half of our face with masks and we're practicing this thing called social distancing, which is a complete oxymoron, and what are you left with? You're left with a group of people who are more digitally connected than ever, but every report says we are also lonelier than ever. And this presents a major problem because, guys, please hear me. No matter who you are or where you come from, if you want to follow Jesus... If you want to not just survive, but thrive as a disciple, you have to. You have to develop deep relationships with other disciples of Jesus. And because Jesus knows this is true, this is why in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, think about this, guys. Jesus could have set this up any way he wanted, but rather than calling a disciple, he called disciples. He didn't just say, like, I'm going to hang out with you on Monday, And then I'm going to go get this guy, and we're going to hang together like just one-on-one on on Tuesday. And then this person by themselves, like, no, no, no. He he pulled together, think about this, a diverse group of people who would center their lives around him on mission together. He calls this good Jewish boy, Peter, right, and Andrew, and James, and John. But then he doesn't stop there. Flip with me over to Matthew chapter 9. Look at this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. I always love to hear the pages of the Bible turning. Here's what we read. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now listen. Matthew was a Jew, but the Jews hated Matthew. Why? Because Matthew was a tax collector. And what did tax collectors do? They worked for the Roman government to oppress the Jews with heavy taxes they couldn't afford. And so just imagine this. Jesus, again, could have set it up any way he wants. He calls good Jewish boys to be a part of his community, and then he calls a man who works for the Roman Empire who oppresses the Jews to be a part of his community. And then it doesn't stop there. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Flip over to the last place we'll look. Matthew 10, verse 1 through verse 4. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Um, Does anybody in here know what a zealot is? at least in in this context. Anybody? Zealots, think about this. Zealots were a violent, insurgent sect of first century Jews who wanted to take down the Roman government using guerrilla tactics. So literally what history tells us is if you were a zealot, you would carry a dagger in your cloak, try to sneak up behind a Roman officer, slit their throat, and then sneak back off into the shadows. And Jesus says, yeah, I want you to be in my community. So imagine for a moment, okay, just use your imagination. You have Matthew, who works for the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot, who wants to take down the Roman government, and Jesus puts them in the same Bible study together. 
Think about that in a world that's gone mad, where it's like if you're a Republican, you hate Democrat, and you're a Democrat, and you hate Republican, and it's just like we're at each other's throat. Guys, literally, literally, this would be like having Donald Trump and Joe Biden in your missional community. Isn't that crazy to think about? Like, do you think there would be some tension? Like, do you think politics would ever come up between them? And do you think that maybe they would even have disagreements on how life worked best? Like, like, do you think they would even have words every now and then and get crossways? Like, of course they would. And yet, Jesus calls them all together to make up his community. It's so important that we get that because isn't it true that sometimes we treat community, the church, like a dating service? I want someone who's tall, but not too tall because that make me feel small. I want someone with this color hair. No, that color hair. I want them to have this kind of jaw to be in this stage of life, to look like that. No, look like this. That's what we do in the church. That's what we do when it comes to things like getting involved. Like, yeah, man, Jared, I get it. I need to get involved in community. And so, like, here's the kind of community I want. Like, I don't want a group of people that's too old because they could be a little bit boring maybe. But I don't want a group too young because those people are immature and messy. Like, I want a group with kids, but not those kind of kids, these kind of kids. I want people in the same stage of life as me. I basically want, here's what I want, Pastor, if you can do this, a perfect little community where everybody looks and acts just like me. Isn't that typically what we're tempted to do? Because this is not the kind of community that Jesus wants to build. Jesus, what we see right here in the scriptures, when he calls his first disciples, he calls a group of people together who think about this, they have different agendas they have different backgrounds. They have different political ideologies. They're, they're in different stages of life. They have different personalities. Peter was an extrovert. Thomas was an introvert. James and John were called the Sons of Thunder. Like, that's a great name if you're a wrestling tag team. But that's a terrible name if you're in community with other people. Like, these guys had such anger issues that literally they walk into one town, and because the people refuse to repent, they're like, Jesus, we need to burn this mother to the ground. Right? <clears throat> Literally. And Jesus is like, guys, let's calm down a little bit. Okay? Maybe set the next few plays out. Go back and read your notes on the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Like, this is the kind of community that Jesus is building. It's a group of incredibly diverse and imperfect people who rally around Jesus. And therefore, as a result, in the midst of incredible hardship and great persecution, God uses them to transform the world. The reason I share all that is just to say this. If we're going to come out of this pandemic better than we went into it, you see it on the screen. If we're going to not just survive, but thrive as hard and difficult and risky as it is, if we're going to experience a life that, that God created us to experience, we cannot do it apart from one another. We need to live deeply connected in a diverse and imperfect community that is all centered around one perfect person, and that person is Jesus Christ. There's an old African proverb that goes like this. Go fast and go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. And you see, because that is true, listen, because we want to go far with Jesus. We want to go deep in relationship with Jesus. What I want to do in the time we have together is I want to share with you four things that we need to remember as we are trying to go far together. By the way, it was just going to be three things, but we have a pre-service prayer meeting, and I came up with a fourth point. So you're welcome. Um, Four things that we need to be reminded of constantly if we're going to not just survive, but thrive in this world. And the first thing we have to remember is this. Community, according to the scriptures, is not optional in your discipleship to Jesus. 
In Luke chapter 8, verse 19 to 21, it says, When Jesus' mothers and brothers came to him, they could not reach him because of the crowd. Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. So imagine, imagine this is a scenario. Jesus is up here teaching. His mother and brothers trying to get in, but they can't get in because the crowd is so big. Hey, your mom and your brothers are out there. <clears throat> Here's how he responds. How is Jesus going to respond to that situation? Oh, let them in. Here's how he responds. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What? Jesus is literally redefining family. He's redefining the family. He's saying, when you choose to follow me, when you trust and obey me, you enter into the family of God. John says it like this in John 1, 12, To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How good of news is that? Paul says it like this in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There are a lot more verses that I could share, but here's just my point, guys, and I'll move on. If you're a child of God, and I'm a child of God, what does that make us? Yeah, it makes us brothers. It makes us sisters. It makes us family. And this gets difficult because some of you have come from really unhealthy families, bad families, dysfunctional families. And you don't know what a healthy family looks like. But let me just tell you real fast. You want to know what a healthy family looks like? When you're part of a healthy family, even when you have conflict, even when things get tough, you don't leave. You don't trade in this family for a new family. Some of you... I know you have parents that are aging and you're trying to take care of them right now and it is so difficult. But you don't go to your mom and dad and say, you know what, mom and dad, this just ain't working for me anymore. I'm going to have to get new parents. If you have kids that have gone wayward, you don't, you know, they're having trouble at school, you don't show up at school and say, hey, you know what, listen, you're really more than me and your mom bargained for, so uh, bad news, we're going to have to get you new parents. Good news is security's here, they'll help you pack your bags and find your new mom and dad. Uh, you may want to do that at times to your kids, but you don't because you're family. And because you're family, what do you do? Even when things get difficult, you remain devoted. You remain connected. Even when things are hard, you stick together. You help carry one another's burdens. If they're sad, you're sad. If they're rejoicing, you're rejoicing. Uh, you forgive one another. You bear one another's burdens. You love one another. And you serve one another. And you do that not because of what you're going to get out of it, because that's just what family does. And so I just want to ask you with that in mind, is this what you think of when you think of the church? Do you view the church as a family? And some of you can be honest, you view the church like an intramural basketball team. You just show up once a week, tell me when game time is, what time, when's the start time? I'll be there. You go for start time, you're there, bam, it's over, see you next week, same time. Others of you, maybe you view the church like a buffet. Let's see, I like this church is preaching, so I'm going to get that over there. I like their small groups, so I'm going to get that over there. I like the music at this place, so I'm going to do that over there. And we kind of have this mentality of, I need to find a church that has the most options on the buffet that can best feed my family. Uh, others, maybe you view the church like a free trial to a streaming service. You know what I'm talking about? Hulu, Netflix, you guys know what I'm talking about? I know you do. You go and you sign up for the seven-day free trial, and as soon as that free trial is over... You cancel the membership and then you change your email address and you do it again. 
And some of you, man, you view the church that way. Man, I really like the services from this church, but as soon as they start expecting something from me, I'm changing addresses. And I just want you to know, like, if that's where you are, guys, the reality is a church is not a weekly event you attend. It's not a buffet where you go to be spiritually fat. It's not a streaming service to get entertained. The church is a family you belong to. It's a family that you commit to, even when there's disagreements, even when there's hard times, even when people let you down, you stay committed. You know, my wife and I, we've been married for 11 years. And there are times where my wife has really hurt me. And there are times where I've really hurt my wife. The times in our marriage and my wife has really let me down and disappointed me. And there are times where I've let her down and I've disappointed her. But you know what? We've chose to stay together. In the good times and the bad times because that's what family does. And a lot of that, if I could just kind of be vulnerable for a moment with you, let me just say this. <clears throat> One of the saddest and most hurtful things to me over the last nine years has been whenever a church member just disappears. Just disappear, man. No phone call, no email, no, me- no talking it out, just I'm going to go somewhere else. You need to know, according to the scriptures, that when you decide to leave a church and go to a new one, that should be a serious decision for you and your family. Serious decision. Because leaving a church is not just changing the channels. It's literally going from one family to another family. And there are times where you need to change churches. That does happen at times. But it should never happen without a serious amount of prayer and thoughtfulness and conversation around that. I was telling, you know, those watching online, like, and and if this is your temptation, hey, listen, you know, I understand it right now because of COVID. You can experience a lot of things virtually. Family is just not one of those things that you can experience virtually. You can experience preaching virtually. If that's what the church is about, if it's just about this, guys, you really can do that. I'll tell you right now, you can do that at home. You can do that virtually. If that's all the church is about, if it's just about music, you can do that virtually. If it's about a Bible study, you can do that virtually. But you can't do deep, authentic relationships virtually. You can't do it. And so I want to encourage you guys. I know you're here. Keep showing up. Make sure, if it's not in a Sunday gathering like this, at least somewhere in a smaller group, that you're plugging in with other brothers and sisters in the faith. Because according to Jesus, again, community is non-optional in your discipleship to him. Secondly, and much quicker, the second thing we need to remember is this. Community is the context for where you are transformed. If there are things you do not like about yourself, if there are areas where you're like, man, there's a big gap between where I am and where I know Jesus wants me to be, you need to know that you're not going to get there apart from community. Community is the context of where you're transformed. In their book, The Other Half of the Church, neurotheologian Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, which, by the way, I wish I was called a neurotheologian. Um, you can call me that if you want to. I'm not one, but it'd be kind of cool. Um, Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, they talk about how people change. And what they talk about in their book is one of the biggest reasons people in the church fail to change is because they are what they refer to as half-brained Christians. And here's kind of the premise. What they basically say is this. When we think of change, we think that we basically, as pastors as in a church, direct everything on the left side of the brain rather than the right side of the brain. But the right side of the brain is really where change happens. And and kind of, you go to the next slide, here's the way they talk about this. The left side of the brain, by the way, this is all backed up by neuroscience. All this, you go research it, it's all out there. 
On the left side of the brain, which is called the, fa- uh, the, the slow track, is conscious thought, speech, strategies, problem solving, and logic. That's all very important. Nobody would debate that. On the right side of the brain, which is called the fast track, is where we have individual and group identity. It's where our emotions and our feelings are seated. It's also where our assessment of surroundings comes in. So is this place safe or dangerous? And it's where our relational attachments are held. It's your ability to relate to others. Now, why is this important? Well, Jim Wilder goes on and says it like this. Our right brain governs the whole range of our relational life. By the way, pause for a second. Do you know what this Bible is about? It's all about how you have a relationship with God. And it's about the crazy, radical stuff that God has done in order to have a relationship with you. Okay? Like, that's what this is about. Like, the whole gospel is about relationship. Now, with that in mind, listen. Our right brain governs the whole range of our relational life. It manages our strongest relational connections, both to people and to God, and therefore, our character formation. Don't miss that. Character formation, which is the primary responsibility of the church, is governed by the right brain, not the left brain. Therefore, if we want to grow and transform our character into the character of Jesus, we must engage in activities that stimulate and develop the right brain. Put another way, if you want to change, you must root yourself in the soil of a healthy community. And guys, this is not just backed up from neuroscience. We see it all over the scripture. I don't have time to get into it, but you can go read in places like Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, and you'll see over and over that if you want to mature and grow up into the best version of yourself, you cannot do it apart from being deeply connected to community. So community is the context for where we are transformed. Third, and this is the point that we came up with in the prayer meeting uh, this morning, 8.50, community is not just the context where we are transformed, but it's the context for where we transform the world. So here's what we, we mean by this. In John 13, 35, Jesus said the following, By this, the world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Now think about that for one moment. Stay with me. By this, the world, Jesus says, is going to know that you truly have the Holy Spirit. By this, the world's going to know if you really are truly a follower of him. How, Jesus? Could have said anything you wanted to next. Anything. But notice, he doesn't say, by this the world will know you're my disciples by how much theology you know. By this the world will know you're my disciples by how much you give to the church financially. By this the world will know you're my disciples because you don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or date girls that do. Right? Like, he doesn't say that. He says, by this the world will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. What Jesus assumes in that moment is that we will be around lost people when we're together in community. And that when they see how we interact with one another and how we love each other and forgive one another and care for one another, the world will look at that and say, there must be something different about you because I've not seen that kind of community anywhere else. And it'll prove that you're his disciples. Jesus says in Corinthians that we as the church are the body of Christ. Do you realize you are not a perfect picture of Jesus, and I am not a perfect picture of Jesus? Amen? At least for my wife. Thank you, Chuck. I am not a perfect picture of Jesus. If I want to show someone a good, clear, beautiful picture of Jesus, I'm going to need the church. They're going to need to see other people than me. So community is essential, not just in our transformation, but in seeing the world transformed as well. So that was the point we added in the prayer meeting today. And then my final point is this. 
The thing we have to remember if we're going to truly not just survive but thrive in the midst of hardship when it comes to community is that community is never ideal and it takes time and intentionality. Guys, please hear me. There are no perfect communities. And do you know why? Because there are no perfect people. And if you go find a perfect community somewhere, don't get in it because you'll screw it up. Because you have sins just like I do. And wounds. And religious and relational baggage. And when we step into community, guys, we bring all of that stuff with us. And because that is true, listen very carefully. There are times where your community will let you down. There are times where your community will let you down. Times. Not like I, there's a time they might. I'm not saying that. There are times, declarative statement, multiple, where they will let you down. There are times where they will sin against you. And you know what? There are times where you'll sin against them. There are times where you'll let them down. There are times where you will not be for them and come through for them like they want you to. And therefore, because that is true, because we've all been hurt in community, the temptation is to try to pull out of community. But if we will not bail, if we will stay with it, if we'll keep showing up, not overnight, but over time, and with a great level of intentionality, you will and we will be able to cultivate, listen guys, the community that they're talking about in the other half of the church, where literally we can then finally have a soil that's healthy enough for us to grow up and mature and finally become the people that we long to be. And so, listen, here's my encouragement to you in light of that. There is no secret that church attendance all across the world is in major decline. <clears throat> and this was happening before COVID, by the way. Like, it was already heading that way. COVID just accelerated it. Like, for our church, I think, you know, before COVID, it was like, what, probably like 500 to 600 people on a Sunday. Um, now, I mean, you'll, you'll have 105 to 115 for each service, right? So, I mean, we've been, we've been our church has been cut in half, right, since COVID. Um, and I think what the temptation is going to be moving forward is we're going to begin to believe the lie that, you know what, I think I actually I can just do church online from here on out. Do you remember how whenever we went online, everybody was like, oh man, whenever the church opens back up, it's going to be flooded with people because online just like, it's no, it's no good, right? Kids are going crazy, but then what happens? You start doing it for a while, and you're like, it actually feels pretty good to watch it in my pajamas, to be honest have my chips and dip right there, just kind of tune in, but also have like maybe other church services going to and see which one's best. And Guys, the new normal does not need to be digital connectivity, but deep community. We need to work harder than ever to go against the pressures of culture. And we need to say, man, we are going to do everything we can as a church to develop deep, Christ-centered, healthy relationships that allow us to grow up into the men and women we actually want to be. And the way that that happens, listen, is not primarily on a Sunday morning, but the way that happens is by getting involved in a missional community. And a missional community, the way we define it, is a group of people who are practicing the way of Jesus together in Northeast Arkansas. And if you want to get involved in a missional community, which is groups of usually around 10 adults, somewhere around there, and then of course our kids, go to our website. It's crossingparagold.com forward slash missional community. And you can get on there, and it will tell you what the next steps are, and we will help you find a community, an imperfect community, <clears throat> excuse me, an imperfect community, but a community nonetheless that you can plug into and experience what we were talking about. Now, if you're in a missional community, here's your next step. Get into a DNA. A DNA, you've heard us talk about this, it stands for Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. It's where you have three to four women or three to four men 
and we kind of pop the hood on our lives, and we all learn together how to dive into some of that deep, kind of gnarly stuff, deep-seated stuff that's been there for years, and learn how to kind of uproot it and replace it with the truth and the beauty of Christ. Okay, like that's where that happens at. And if you're like, I'm already in both of those, then here's what I want you to do. And I'm assuming this is the majority of you, by the way. And Adam, you can go ahead and come on up, because he's going to talk about this, the next part of this. <clears throat> um, and it's only going to take you about an hour. Is that right? Okay, all right, so, yeah. Um, if you're already in a missional community or you're already in a DNA, here's what we really want to encourage you to do, to really run after what he's about to share. Because what he's about to talk about is just a community, like, and we realize this. We thought when we planted the church, like, well, if we just get everybody in a missional community, we'll be good. Like, we'll make resilient disciples. But you can have a really toxic missional community. And you can have a really toxic DNA. And so what he's going to talk about are what are the four ingredients that we all have to work and try to cultivate or try to put into our communities in order to grow up. And so, Adam, take it away. <laughs> Very long-winded. Buckle up, everybody. Um, so thanks, Jared. Actually, I'm going to try to be really quick. What we'll probably do is circle back around at some point and do a sermon series on everything that I'm about to share. But the basic idea that Jared's getting at that we want to communicate as, as pastors is that healthy soil is essential for healthy growth. So what my gardening friends like this one tell me is that um, the most important part of, of, of producing a good fruit and good growth is the soil. If the soil is healthy, you're going to get healthy growth. And the flip side of that's also true. If the soil's not healthy, you're going to have all kinds of unhealthy stuff. You're still going to get growth, but you're going to get unhealthy growth. All kinds of like fungi and diseases and toxic stuff that's growing that's going to sabotage the crops and the fruits that you're trying to produce. Now, with that image in your mind, hold that. The same thing is true in relationships. If the, if the soil in your relationships is unhealthy, you're going to have all kinds of healthy stuff growing in your relationships, like self-protection and selfishness and defensiveness and judgmentalism and narcissism and all that stuff is going to poison, it's going to sabotage and undo the fruit of the gospel and the spirit, and it's going to poison the relational system that you're a part of. Because that's true, the question that we want to ask is, well, how then do you cultivate a healthy soil in, in your relationships, especially the relationships in your home and in the context of your missional community? And with that said, there's four basic ingredients that Jared mentioned, and we're, we're taking, we owe most of this to the work of Jim Wilder that Jared's already mentioned. So here they are in a nutshell, and I'll, I'll camp out on the first one just a hair longer than the others. But the first ingredient we have to have in place in order for us to have a healthy relational soil is a shared joy in our relationships. And it's been said that joy you can't get from, like, stuff, by the way. You get it from, from relationships. And so it's been said that joy is what you feel when you see the sparkle in someone else's eye that communicates, I'm happy to be with you. That's joy. And Jim Wilder says it like this. God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. Our brains desire joy more than any other thing. So as we go throughout our day, our right brains, which you heard Jared mention, are scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. This is why, by the way, um, it's been said that the number one question that children ask of adults, especially of their parents, is, does their face light up when they see me? That's the question your kids are asking, so no pressure, moms and dads, um, on like how you relate to your kids. But when they're with you, that's the question they're asking. And because God designed our brains to function this way, that's a question we carry into adulthood. Who's happy to be with me? That's what our brains are scanning the room for. Um, because God's designed our brains to function this way, it makes sense why you see so many passages in the scriptures 
about God's face lighting up when he sees his children. So I think of the famous blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. Look at this. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward your face. And the result is it gives you peace. So the idea is that as God's children, we should see the Father's face beaming and beholding us with eyes of love. And then we are made to grow and flourish in the glow of his delight. Now check this out. You want to know what one of the primary ways you experience the Father's face is? In community. <laughs> Through relationships with other spirit-filled brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Jared was just talking about this last week. Like We, we took a picture of uh, his daughter on my daughter's back. And Jared goes, holy cow. When I look in Lucy Blue's face, I see Adam Breckenridge's face. Like people tell, her, tell that girl all the time, you bear your father's resemblance. So because we share the same spirit, when, when we look in each other's face, you see something of the father's resemblance. And so the key takeaway for us then is this. What, are you aware of what your face and your presence are communicating when you're with other people? Because it's saying something. So when your kids walk in the room, when, when someone from your missional community walks through that door, do they, do they notice you noticing them? Do they see you seeing them with eyes of love? Do they see this expression on your face that says, hey, dude, I'm happy, to, good to see you. Or do they see this? Right? Or do they see you off in a side conversation, you don't even stop to notice or have enough awareness to like notice that somebody else just came into the room and nobody's talking to them, right? So like... What is your face? What is your presence communicating? And as a church, we desperately want to create a culture where we have a, we have a group of people whose faces light up with each other because that's the way of our Father. Amen? Okay, real quick, here's the other three. Second ingredient that makes for a healthy relational soil is what the Bible calls hesed love. This Hebrew word hesed uh, describes the nature and character of God's love, and you often see it translated loyalty, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness. So with your eyes on those words, here's what it's getting at. Hesed is a loyal, steadfast, secure, covenant love. It's the kind of love that's not performance-based. It's the kind of love that says you're safe with me even when you fail. It's the kind of love that says I love you for who you are, not what you do. It's the kind of love that says no matter what, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And I love that Jared's talking about neuroscience because neuroscience is catching up to the Bible finally. And neuroscience is telling us that the attachment system in the brain is just looking for that. That's all it's looking for. So everybody's just looking for God's love. That's all everybody's looking for. And we're looking for it in all the wrong places. And here's what's amazing about the way God's designed the, the family of God is through abiding in the vine and through our connection to him, the divine sap of his love flows to us and through us. So we give and receive the Father's hesed love to one another as we receive it. Is this making sense? So here's what that means. And if you want your missional community to be healthy, if you want your family to be healthy, you've got to have a culture where hesed love is growing. Like, the, it's a gracious love that's not performance-based. It's a love that says, I'm not going to hit the eject button the moment you fail or you, 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 know, you fail my expectations or you sin against me or hurt me or whatever. So um, it's the hesed love, it's been said, is the relational glue the Holy Spirit produces that holds the church together. So we've got to have that in order to have a healthy soil. Third, ingredient for a healthy relational soil is what we call group identity and this is just the idea that in Christ we not only have a new individual identity but we have a new group identity so we're part of this new family in this new humanity that God's creating through the gospel and a key ingredient for healthy soil is for your MC to have this strong um, group identity sense of this is who we are as a people 
This is who we are as a family. This is what our people value. This is what our people, uh, how our people think and act. And, and this is how our pe- what our people thinks is virtuous and non-virtuous, all based on the character of Jesus. And so you have to have that strong sense of group identity in place. Fourth and finally, if you want to have a healthy soil, you have to have a culture of uplifting healthy correction. And I've heard farmers talk about how you can have all the right ingredients and fertilizers in place and you can have wild, outrageous growth. But if you don't step in with the right amount of correction at the right time, that growth will actually sabotage itself and it'll kill your crops. So the point is, if, if we're really a community with Jesus at the center, our job, according to Galatians 6 and all over the New Testament, is to help each other grow up. And to help each other flourish in the way of Jesus and mature. And you can't do that if we don't practice healthy, uplifting correction. So it starts with eye contact, by the way. Healthy correction starts with eye contact that says, I love you. And this relationship's not at risk just because you failed. Healthy correction then moves into a reminder of who they are and who we are as the people of God. Like you seem to have forgotten. So let me hold up the mirror for you. This is not the way our people do relationships, not the way we do things. And then it moves into, hey, this is an incredible opportunity for you to grow and learn. So in a sense, this is a gift from the Father. Don't, don't squander this. Don't waste this. This is an opportunity. This is grace. And then finally, healthy correction again couches everything in, hey, we love you, and we're not going anywhere just because you failed. We're not leaving. So it's not this like shame, condescending thing, but it's like I'm putting my arm around you, and I'm with you the whole way through this. So put those four back on the screen if you can. To sum it up, um, we long for our church to be the kind of relational environment where we can all grow up into resilient disciples. And in order for that to happen, we've got to cultivate a healthy relational soil in our families and our missional communities. And um, we think if we can hold these four ingredients together, we'll have that. A joy that is shared, a hesed love, secure relationships, a well-developed uh, sense of group identity, and a culture of uplifting healthy correction. With those in place, we really do think we can thrive as, as resilient disciples. So, Jared, was that quick enough? Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks. Well, that's going to be a piece of cake, right? Yes? Yeah? Y'all ready to go do it? Um, hey, honestly, the only way that's possible is through Jesus. And that's not just preacher talk. I mean, like, that's the only way we're going to get traction on any of this stuff is by, it goes back to last Sunday, us abiding in the vine, staying connected to Jesus. And so that's why every single week we end as we do with communion. And here's what I want you to think about this week as we partake of communion. Break down that word and what do you get? It's a common union. What is our common union? What brings us together, what holds us together, is not our political beliefs. It's not our personalities. It's not our stage of life. Or what socioeconomic bracket we're in. It's not our personalities. Like, man, I, I long to see missional communities where it's like, why in the world would you be a part of this church with these people? Like, y'all all look so much different. Like, I long for us to have that kind of diversity where the outside world will look in and say, of course y'all must be bounded around, bounded around Jesus, held together by Jesus. Because there's no other reason for you to come together. As the truth is... In, in most churches, in most places, it's like a high school cafeteria. You walk in and it's like, yeah, no wonder they're all in a group together. They all dress alike. They all act alike. They all like the same stuff. They're all in the same stage of life. That's not the community Jesus wants to build. Jesus wants to build something far more beautiful and resilient than that, but it's only going to be held together by him. 
And so what I want you to remember today as you partake of communion is Jesus is the one that we are centering and building our church on. He is the one who holds us together. As you take the bread, remember, he came and lived a perfect life that none of us can live. You know what that means? It means you don't need, not only do you not need to be perfect, you don't need others to be perfect. Jesus is perfect for all of us. And so he came and lived a perfect life we couldn't live. And we remember that as we take the bread. And then as you drink the juice, be reminded that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And guys, listen, here's what this means. And we're done. Because you have been forgiven of your sins, because of his life, his death, his resurrection, you can now have a relationship with the God of the universe. That's what this is about. And whenever you get grafted into the vine, as we talked about last week, John 15, guess what? You're also grafted in with everybody else. You're in the vine, but so are all these other branches. You're a branch, and everyone else is a branch. So our life is not just connected to Jesus, it's connected to one another, and he holds us together. And so remember that today, especially as you partake of communion. And if you're here today, and for some reason, you know, you're not a follower of Jesus, you've not really trusted in him, you don't have a relationship with him, don't take the communion. You can if you want to, but it's, it's, it's going to be empty for you. Like, I don't even know how much we paid for these things. And, and honestly, the bread part is not good at all. It's like styrofoam. We don't take it because by taking it, God answers some prayer or he loves us more. We take it because it's a sign of hope. We take it because we're family. And it's just a way for us to share a meal together in this moment and be reminded that Jesus is at the head of the table, the head of our family. And if you're not a part of a family, if you're here today, the Bible's clear, you're an orphan. You, you don't have a spiritual family. And that's why you should be anxious. You're not protected. You are alone, spiritually speaking. But that's only by your own doing. The door is wide open. There is a seat at the table for you. And Jesus is inviting you in, and so are we. And so if you're just interested in that, and you want to learn more about what it means to be a part of this imperfect family, talk with me, talk with Adam, talk with whoever you came with, message me, do whatever. I'll be happy to grab coffee with you and help you process next steps. With that, I want to invite the band to come forward, if they will. And stay seated just a little bit longer. Prayerfully take of communion. And then after you take of communion, you can stand and sing with the band let me pray over our time as we enter into this. <clears throat> Father, I do thank you for everyone who is here. I thank you that you made us family. It makes me so happy to be here with these people, to know that we really are. I mean, I look in this room, even as right now as I pray, I just think about how different we all are. Um, there is diversity among our family, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Jesus, that I have more in common with with these people than I do even some who dress just like me and listen to the same music as me or into the same sports teams as me. That's just beautiful. And I just want to say thank you for that. And I pray for anybody who is here right now who maybe is an orphan. Um, they don't have a spiritual family. They have religion, but they don't have a relationship with you. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, make them aware of that. I pray that you would see that, that, that life is lived best in your family. It is your family that they long for. And so help them to experience right now in a real tangible way your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and everything that you have for them that's all wrapped up in you, Jesus. And it's in your name that I do pray and ask these things. Amen.